Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whenever you choose to listen to this podcast. This is episode number 11 of The 34 Show, and I will be your host, Riley Gray. In today's episode, I have a very special guest for you all. It's a really, really cool interview that I recorded with former NHL player and pro hockey player, Barry Bugner. He played back in the 1970s, 1960s. He was really fun to talk to about kind of what it was like playing back in the day, what you had to do to make it to the NHL, and just some cool stories of meeting some Hall of Fame NHL players in his time. After the interview, I am going to be going over the Leafs' brief uh, two-game, three-game skid they had and picking up a win last night against Winnipeg. After going over the Leafs, I will be touching on the AL West and my predictions for that division in the upcoming 2021 MLB season. And lastly, giving you my reactions to the UFC 259 fight card now that it is almost a week from being done. I think now is a great time to send it over to the interview with Barry. Just a fair warning, I had to use a recording device on my phone to capture this interview. It doesn't sound the greatest and there are some lulls that I was unable to kind of edit out which just show that it was a little delayed when he was talking to me and I was talking to him. But overall, it's a great interview and I hope you all enjoy. Back to when you were younger and a kid, uh, when did you kind of figure out that you wanted to start playing hockey when you were younger? Um, I really didn't, uh, think much about wanting to be a hockey player until I was probably about 14 years old. Um, I played minor hockey when I started minor hockey. I was actually a goaltender because no one else would play there. So I said, well, okay, somebody's got to be the goalie. So I'll be the goalie. So in Pee Wee, uh, I was the goaltender in the Pee Wee team and actually, the minor hockey league that I played in uh, gave out the best goaltender in minor hockey, and I won that one year when I was a peewee. Uh, then the next year I was a bantam uh, and played defense, and I led the league in scoring uh, in, in a competitive league. Uh, and then after that, I, I wanted to play hockey at a higher level, so I didn't actually play midget hockey. So when I was uh, 13 years old, I played Junior C in Tilsonburg, and then when I was 14, I played uh, Junior B in, uh, no, when I was 13, I played Junior C in Simcoe, Ontario, and, that, and that's very, very young because they played until they were okay. 21 in junior. Then I played Junior B in Simcoe the next, and uh, Tilsonburg the next year, uh, and then when I was 16, I went to London to play Junior B, and I played Junior A hockey, so... At about 13 or 14 years old, I decided I wanted to play hockey. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, playing at such a young age in junior, that, that must have been difficult to get used to, but I'm sure it kind of helped you progress with your like pro career and kind of getting to play bigger kids when you were younger. Uh, kind of growing up, you said you played baseball along with hockey. Did you find it hard to balance between the both, or was it kind of more of a summer sport for you to play baseball when you couldn't play hockey? Well, back when I was a kid, there wasn't much else to do in the summertime. So um, the reason I got interested in baseball was because my father was a baseball player, and he coached the Junior B uh, baseball team in uh, Delhi, and I was the bat boy at nine years old in 1957. Uh, and I was the bat boy the next year in 1958. Then I started to play minor baseball. Um, that's how I got interested in, in playing baseball. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty awesome. Uh, so when you when you were growing up playing hockey and in in that sort of sense, who was really your biggest influence in playing in playing hockey and someone who helped you kind of get to the pro level? Um, really and truly, I I didn't have anyone in particular that uh, inspired me. I guess it was just my human nature. I, I, uh, whenever I played in anything competitive, I wanted to be the best I could be. And I guess I was pretty fortunate uh, in both baseball and hockey. I excelled at both sports. Um, and one of the key things in hockey and baseball, uh, actually, in all the years I played junior, junior hockey at the age of 13 and right up until my professional hockey career, I I never had anybody that could outskate me, and when I played baseball uh, at the at the minor hockey, junior, and London Inner County baseball, which was the best amateur baseball league in Canada, um, I I was probably the fastest runner, and so I I had I had a lot of skills, but I never perceived myself to be a skilled player. What what I focused on the most was being the hardest worker, and I didn't want anybody to ever outwork me. So that was, that was my inspiration was my own. I just wanted to be as good as I could be. And I wanted to outwork everybody at every sport I ever played on. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. I think that's a great kind of trait to have in a person, especially when you play sports, you have to be so competitive and so driven. And I think a lot of kids these days kind of lack that. They all think that they're, just so good at a young age and that they're better than everyone that they just don't put in the extra work. And I think that's something you need to have at, at every level of any sport you play. Yeah. Well, I guess what, I don't know. It wasn't instilled in me because my father never pushed me at hockey or baseball, nor did my mother. No one did. I I, I basically pushed myself. I, I, I call it, you know, we have to have the desire, the uh, determination, and uh, you have to be dedicated, and uh, you. I wanted to be successful. I want. I wanted to be the best player in every team I played on, and and that's what drove me to always to to always work my hardest. Yeah, no, I think that yeah, that's awesome. I, I think that's what you have to have if you want to make it far in any sport, especially to the pro level. You just have to believe in yourself and have that drive just instilled in you to do to do great things in the sport when you uh when you think back to your first nhl game uh what was the feeling like stepping out onto the ice for the first time well like anybody else uh it was a dream come true um actually uh my my uh, the first day that I was going to play my first NHL game was probably one of the best memories in my life. I uh, I flew from Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, actually, we I was playing for Providence in the American Hockey League. This was a 1969-70 season, and Bill Torrey, uh, who was later with the Islanders, was with the Oakland uh, Seals or the California Seals because they changed names. 69, 70, 71, they changed names. And Frank uh, Selke Jr. was the manager, and Bill Torrey was an assistant manager. So there's a little history right there. 
Bill Torrey went on to be one of the greatest managers in hockey history with the Islanders. Uh, I flew with them. Uh, I, I drove from uh, Providence to Boston. We got on a plane in Boston, and I was dressed up like it was cold as heck out, and the snow was about two feet deep, and I had on this great big wool coat. Uh, we landed in San Francisco, and it was so hot, it was unbelievable. Uh, then we then we got on. <laughs> we didn't take a cab, which I was sort of surprised. They must have thought they had a lot of money. We we actually went on a helicopter from San Francisco over to Oakland Airport, and I had never been on anything as noisy. If you ever been on a helicopter, you won't believe how 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 much noise there is. You can't even hear yourself talk or anything. Uh, we went to the hotel, and when I arrived at the hotel. Uh, the Toronto Maple Police were there. They played the night before. And in the lobby of the hotel was my, my buddy Daryl Sittler and Jim Dory playing for the Leafs that I that I played junior with. And uh, I was talking to Daryl Sittler and uh, Jim Dory, which was a great surprise for me. Uh, they were about to pack up their bags and leave. And in the door comes the Detroit Red Wings. So I'm talking to Jim Dory and Daryl <laughs> Sittler. And... Uh, all of a sudden, Gordy Howe comes over and introduces himself to Dorian Sittler, who he knew. He didn't know me. It was my first game in the NHL. And I guess he came over to congratulate Sittler and Dory for playing for the Leafs. And so I got to meet Gordy Howe. And what happened was Sittler and Dory went back to their rooms to pack their bags to leave. And Gordy, I was standing there with Gordy Howe, and I was, I was like, I was spellbound. I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> And finally, I looked at him and I said, uh, Mr. Howe, I'm going to go, I'm going to walk across the road. I'm going over to the tax shop. I want to buy a pair of cowboy boots. He says, well, I'm going over there too. So Gordy Howe and I walked across about six lanes of traffic over to the tax shop. We, we both found a pair of cowboy boots and him and I sat down like on a deacon's bench and we both put our boots on, tried them out and we both liked the boots we were trying out. So we stepped up and paid, and Gordy Howe paid. Uh, he probably had a credit card. I didn't have a credit card back then. I paid cash for mine, and and I said to him, uh, Mr. Howe, it was a great honor to meet you. I said, I'm going to go back to the hotel. i got to get a little sleep before the game tonight. And, of course, we're going to play the Red Wings that night. And Mr. Howe shook my hand and uh, wished me luck. So... I'm not even two hours into being in Oakland, California, and I've met up with Sittler and Jim Dory and Gordy Howe. I went back to my room. I called my parents, went to sleep, and uh, played Gordy Howe that night. And he scored three goals that night against us. So it, it, it was it was a it was a great first day. But there's one other little story to that. When I came back to the hotel after talking to Gordy Howe. Uh, Sittler and Dory were back downstairs again. So we talked for a little bit longer, and then all of us went upstairs together. I was going to go have a little sleep, and Dory and Sittler were going to go get their bags, come back downstairs to the lobby. When we got up to the second floor, uh, we get off the elevator, and uh, all the Toronto Maple Leafs are all standing in the hallway together. But they were about 30 or 40 yards away from the three of us. All of a sudden, some of the Leafs were waving at Jim Dory to come down. They wanted to talk to him, and it, it looked like it was important. So Dory went there, and Daryl says, I'm going to stay here and talk to Boogie, because uh, Daryl Sittler, I, I introduced him to the woman he married, Wendy Bibbings. 
So him and I were good buddies because we played junior together. And Dory went down to talk to the Leafs. A few minutes later, Jim Dory, a few minutes later, Jim Dory come back and said, Daryl, you got to come down here. Tim Horton just got traded from the Leafs to the New York Rangers. And Tim Horton was my favorite player for the Leafs. Not that I liked the Leafs, but I liked Tim Horton. So that's my first day in the National Hockey League. Yeah, that's crazy, meeting so many legends in one day and just being able to talk yeah. to them and stuff. That's that's really, really yeah. cool. I couldn't yeah. even imagine just being in the same room with some people like that. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a dream come true. Uh, I guess, uh, fortunately for me, my dream came true. However, it really didn't last that long. I played parts of two years uh, for Oakland. I played a total of 20 or 30 games, but uh, uh, you know what? How many how many people's dreams come true? Every kid in Canada probably wants to play in the NHL, but I got there. Yeah, exactly. No, that's awesome. Uh, like, yeah, there's probably 0.1% of people who can even say they played pro hockey and you got to do it in the NHL and played a bunch of seasons in the AHL, which is amazing too. When you, when you think about the AHL and the NHL, was there a big difference in skill between the two leagues? Um, I, I would say uh, the, the, there's a difference in skill. Um. Uh, the National Hockey League game is faster, which was okay for me because I was a great skater. That was no big deal for me. Um, uh, but you, you, you just had to be – your skills had to be more polished. Um, you had to be a little tougher. You had to be a better skater. You had to be a, a, a quicker, smarter thinker. Um, of course, there's a difference between the American Hockey League and the National League. I guess one of the things that I found very disappointing was – I thought there was a lot of guys in the American League that should have had chances to play in the National Hockey League, but sometimes the teams never give you a chance. And so I always say to myself, a lot of these guys I think could have played, but no one ever gave them a chance to play. And I I, I found that rather sad and disappointing that a lot of guys never got the chance. Yeah, that's fair. You think about all the people who play in the AHL, Back then, even nowadays, who are just playing there, never even get a chance to play a game in the NHL, and it's kind of tough. They devote their whole whole career, whole life to the game, and they never get a chance to play in it. But you, you get to say you played parts of two seasons in it, which is which is insane, and it, it's a great accomplishment for sure. Yeah, great for me. It's uh, it's what I wanted to do. I never really realized it until I was about fourteen or fifteen years old. And I said, you know what? I, I can skate like heck. I, I can play hard. Um, I listen. I could be coached. Uh, and I just said, well, let's see what happens. If I can make junior B, I'll make junior A. And once I got to junior A, I said to me myself, I, you know what? I, th- I think if someone gives me the chance and gives me a nice enough ice time to play, whether it be in junior A or the minor leagues, I think I can get there. And I did. My dream came true. But I'm going to tell you one thing. It wasn't an easy road trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't doubt it. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's crazy the amount of work you must have put in to get there and, and be at the top of the top of the world with how, how skilled the guys are in the NHL. 
back then and nowadays. When you look at the landscape of, of hockey nowadays, do you like how the game is being played with more of a quicker pace and kind of less physicality, or would you like to see it go back to being more of a hard-nosed mentality game? Well, I'm going to tell you, watching the game, it's so fast. Back in my day, and you will understand this too, every team in the National Hockey League had two or three or four guys that, you know what, they were really, really tough guys. They were sort of like enforcers. But a lot of them, a lot of them, not all of them, a lot of them weren't very skilled. They weren't good skaters. They couldn't score goals. They were there to sort of straighten out guys on the other team. But today, in today's game, if you can't skate, you can't even play there. It doesn't matter how tough you are. You could be the toughest guy in, in, in all of professional hockey. But if you can't skate, if you can't skate at the pace, you can't play. If you don't have the skills, you can't play there anymore. So that part of hockey I like. Um, and a lot of people may be surprised by what I'm going to say next. I love the skills in hockey. And I always ask myself, why are players playing here that are tough and can just beat guys up when there's guys in the minor leagues that are skilled and are tough that could play ahead of this guy? I could never understand it. So I, I like the game today. I have to admit there's not enough hitting. And the game, the teams are so well coached offensively and defensively that the game sometimes looks like it's going end-to-end end and nothing's happening. And I find that a little frustrating. Yeah, no, for sure. I think uh, I think you hit it right on the head there with, with it being like, if you even if you are a tough guy in the league nowadays, you have to be able to skate. You have to be able to put points up to to stay in the NHL, or else you're just gonna yeah. you're not gonna last. Well, yeah, there's one thing for sure. We talked about it yesterday. Go ahead. Oh, okay, uh, we talked about this yesterday a bit on the phone. Uh, when you think about coaches and what they were when you played versus what they are now. Um, obviously you can see a huge difference in the game. Uh, tell me a bit about how coaches were back in the day. Well, I'm going to be pretty frank. And this may tick a few people off. Might it make them angry? And uh, maybe my name will be circulating across North America. But when I played minor hockey, the coaches were just coaches. They were all good people. Uh, they treated everybody fairly. When I played minor hockey, everybody got to play. Minor hockey's got so competitive now, and the whole focus is about winning, which really irritates me, even at the competitive level. I like everybody to play. If you're a good coach, you're going to teach kids how to play. If they're not good enough to play, why do you have them on your team? Really, in minor hockey, the coaches were great. They were, they were fathers. They were great guys. Now, when you get into junior hockey, I had a great coach in junior C. His name was Fred Kenny and Simcoe. He was a great coach. He taught he taught people how to play the game. Um, a nice guy. He 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 didn't badmouth anybody. He wasn't mean. He he didn't have one or two guys on his team that he berated. He was good. But after that. I never had a good coach until I got into prof my first year of professional hockey was the International Hockey League. 
Um, I had a guy named Howie Milford. Uh, he was from Western Canada. Um, he was the best coach I ever had. And it was my first year in the International Hockey League. I played in Des Moines, and he taught me the game. Uh, he taught me how to play with the puck and without the puck in all three zones. You got the you got, you got the defending zone, the offensive zone, and the neutral zone. He was a great coach. But I have to tell you, the rest of my the rest of my, my career in hockey, I, I I never had a good coach. Didn't teach you a damn thing, nothing. They taught you nothing. I was in I with the New York Islanders. I was there a little bit. Uh, I played with the Islanders uh, a little bit. Um, I didn't play. I played exhibition games and I played in training camp. And Al Arbor was a great coach, and everybody that played for Al Bar- Arbor liked him. He was like a r- great coach and a father. Um, but I only had him for a little bit, so he was all okay. But I played in Des Moines one year in 1972-73. I had a guy, his name was Terry Slater, and I'm not afraid to tell you his name. And he, he was a university graduate. He had a degree in child psychology. And I think he was at Colgate University, but I can't remember the university now. But he, this guy should have been put in prison, the way he treated hockey players. And I'm going to give you – the coaches today, you know in the last couple of years, some coaches have been suspended from hockey, because the way they treat players. And uh, the last guy was with the Leafs. Who was the coach, the last Leaf coach? He got in a little trouble with the way he treated Mitch Marner, right? And a few coaches have been thrown out of hockey because you can't yeah, Babcock. Babcock. Yeah, he 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 lost his job basically because of the way he treated Marner and other hockey players. And you know what? Uh back when I played, you could treat a player any way you wanted. And you know what? It didn't matter. You had no control, you had no say, you didn't you didn't have you didn't have a, a, a player's agent and players agents has helped this process. Because now the players don't have to deal with the coaches and the managers. The players' agents deal with the coaches and the managers. And that helps the players stay out of all the bad stuff with coaches, which I really like. However, this Terry Slater, I thought he he had a degree in child psychology, and he treated players like children. One time he came into the dressing room with great big suckers, lollipops, about six inches long. He went over to the the Kmart one day and came into the dressing room, put a lollipop in everybody's stall. And before the game, he had a lollipop in everybody's stall. And I said to him when he came in the room, what are these suckers for? Well, those are suckers for children. When you play like children, you'll be treated like children. So I gathered up all the suckers and I threw them at him. I said, you're not going to disrespect me. You disrespect me, I'm going to disrespect you. But I was the only guy in the room with to do that because, you see, I I have some integrity. You treat me with integrity, I treat you. But I was different than anybody else because nobody else would do that. But I stuck up for myself. You can't treat me the way you treated me. They could treat the other guys like that, but I stuck up for everybody. I threw all the suckers at them. They were banging off his body and off his head and everything. I said, don't you ever treat anybody or myself like that again. Well, not long after that, we played a game one night in Des Moines, and we had to get on the bus after the game and travel to Fort Wayne. Now, we had to travel to Dayton, Ohio, to play a game. And we didn't get there until 1 in the afternoon because our bus broke down in a snowstorm. So when we're dressing, 
he he went over to he went over to a store somewhere and he bought nightgowns for all the players that went down to about your knees. Some had teddy bears on them, some had little chickens on them, and he made us wear them in the warm up. Well, we got beat about eleven or eleven or twelve to two. The next morning when we went to practice, he made us get up early in the morning and go to practice after we traveled all night the night before in a snowstorm, hardly got any sleep, played the game. And then the next day, he lined everybody up down the boards, all the way down the boards from one end to the other. He said, okay, boys, you play like children. I'm going to treat you like children. He says, everybody get down on their hands and knees. So I figured we're going to do push-ups and exercises, right? He said, okay, first guy, crawl across the ice on your hands and knees like a little child. He made everybody go go across the ice on their hands and knees. I wouldn't do it. So I walked, I skated over to the coach and I said, listen, you're not going to treat anybody on this team like a child. You have a, you have a degree in child psychology. You're the child in this group and you're not going to treat me or any of my teammates like that. So do you know what? We're all leaving the ice unless you have a practice and treat us like men. And he never said a word. I said, okay, guys, everybody off the ice. Let's go. We're not playing for this guy anymore. So we left the ice. He never did it again to anybody else. <laughs> but that's how that, that's, that's how play it. Awesome story. I mean, well, there's even more to that story. One ahead. time we one time later we had a practice after that, and uh, no pucks, no nets. So what he was going to do? This this was going to be an, an endurance test. It wasn't practice, no skills, don't do any game situations, don't do anything. This practice is what I called an endurance test. So he said, okay, everybody skate around the rink. You go as hard as you can from the blue line to blue line on each side. After 10 minutes, he was out there in a chair like you'd have in an office with wheels on it, wrapped in a blanket. He had a hat on, and he wore glasses, and he had a whistle and two water bottles beside his chair. So after 10 minutes, he blows a whistle. Okay, everybody here. He said, uh, apparently you guys don't know what hard work is. You're not working hard enough. So he said, let's go again, blue line to blue line. Again, another 10 minutes. And after the third time, I skated around the rink with all the players, and I said, listen, next time this guy blows a whistle and we all have to go to where he's sitting on the chair, I want everybody to stay out of the way. Give me some room. I want When I come around the rink, I want to see him. So I came around the rink, and I went as fast as I could. And I went about 20 feet from him, and I and I was going, skating his arse, and I put snow all over his face, all over his hat, all over his glasses, and all over his jacket. He couldn't see. He couldn't do nothing. He never budged an inch. And know what I said to him? If you're going to treat... If you're going to continue to treat me like this, I would rather you send me home right now. I don't want to play here any longer. I'm leaving. You release me right now. I'm going home. And I said, if you don't release me and go home, and you're going to have to send me my checks. He said, I won't have to do that. I said, yes, I will. I got a no trade, no cut contract. You got to pay me. My pay is guaranteed. So that's the way this coach was. And don't think there was other coaches that weren't as bad as him but like him. 
They, they, they never taught you a thing, and they were bullies. Yeah, that's 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 insane to hear. And just the story, it's it's crazy to think that that's how most of the coaches kind of conducted their practices and conducted the way they uh, they led the team. And, and you don't you see stories like that here and there nowadays. But those coaches get fired right away, and you don't see them back in hockey for a while. It's it's crazy to see. Yeah, well, I was playing in uh, New Haven. Uh, 1972-73, I was in New Haven playing in the American Hockey League, and Parker McDonald, who assisted on Gordie Howe's uh, uh, goal that tied Rocket Richard's uh, lifetime record, um, Gordie Howe broke it after that, but Parker McDonald was the coach, and we were a New York Islanders farm team. And on that team, we, we had Bobby Nystrom, we had Chico Rash, we had Gary Howitt, all guys that went up to play for the Islanders a couple of years later, right? And uh, one day we were playing in Cleveland. We got beat about 11-1. So the next day we got home, same thing. No nets, no pucks. Like, when you're a hockey player and you go out for practice and there's no nets, the first thing you know is there's going to be an endurance test. In other words, this is going to be a no-brainer practice. What we're going to do is we're going to torture you because you got beat. We're not going to teach you how to be better. We're not going to get. We're not going to teach anything about how to play. What we're going to do is we're going to torture you. So he lined everybody up. He lined everybody up across the line. And you know what? He went one guy at a time across. Then when that guy got back, the next guy went. Then the next time it was two guys across. Then the next time it was three until you went down the whole line, like three, four, five, all went across, right? And Bobby Nystrom was there, and I, I was standing beside him at the end. I said, Bobby, I'm going to guarantee you, I'll be the last guy standing. He looked at me and said, well, how do you know that? I says, because I'm in shape, and, and, and this, this, guy, this, guy, this guy can't wear me out. So believe it or not, I was the last. Him and I were the last two guys standing. All the rest of the guys were puking and barfing and passing out, and him and him and I were the last two guys. And and when when we had to go again, Bobby Nixon said, "Okay, Boogie, you win. You're the last guy." <laughs> but like, how dumb was a practice like that? <laughs> you didn't teach that. I never had a practice like that in my life when I coached anybody. Yeah, no, those that doesn't make any sense to me. Those those type of practices and just having that mindset as a coach, thinking you're just going to skate everybody till they pass out and not really work on anything that's going to make the team better, especially after you lose, like you said. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't make any sense to me. Coaches like that can't te- they don't teach anything. That's what they do. They punish you. Yeah, it's true. There, it, it, it's 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 kind of shitty to think that there's still coaches out there that do that, but there is. And yeah. uh, I don't know. I don't think they ever they ever make winning teams out of that type of practice or mentality. Yeah, I don't know if there's too much of that anymore or at all, because I think uh, the the players are pretty smart these days, and uh, whether they're well educated or not, I think they're a lot better educated today. A lot of kids go to university. 
there's a lot. They're, they're more educated. They're smarter. They have more skills. I'm sure the captain would go to the coach and, and have a little chat with the coach and say, listen, the, the, these torture tests and endurance tests, you, you're not teaching us anything. I, I don't think they do it too much anymore. And if they do, I would say uh, that coach needs to be enlightened on the intelligence of hockey players. Yeah, no, for sure. I think I think you're right on that. I think players nowadays speak their mind and kind of like you were doing, saying going up to to coaches and telling them that this is this isn't right. We're not going to do this. I think that more and more players probably do that nowadays, and that's why it's probably not as prevalent now in hockey. Well, the problem was in those days, anybody who did that probably would have had a, a pink slip to go home. Now, that same coach I'm talking to you about before, Terry Slater, uh, we practiced one day, and then after the practice, we had to get on the bus and go on a road trip. So we practiced. Everybody had their bags. We get on the bus. Terry Slater comes on the bus, and he has a sheet, and he goes down the list. Barry Bugner, are you here? Walt McTechnie, are you? So he goes down the list. Everybody that was supposed to be on the bus going on the road trip, he checked their names off. But at that time, we had four or five extra players, and he didn't take any extra players on the road trip. They stayed behind to practice, right, until we come back. But w- when he got off the bus and went back into the arena, he was gone about 15 minutes. Then he came back to the bus. We went on the road trip. When we came back home, none of the players that were there when we left, there, none of them were there. They're, they're all gone home. So here's what we found out. Terry Slater got off the bus. He went and got... They're, they're, he gave them a check or gave them money to get a bus or uh, a bus or an air flight home. He gave them, he put it in their shoes while they were on the ice. So when all those players come off the ice, they were called black aces then if you didn't play. But you had to have extra players. They all looked in their shoes after they showered and got dressed, and they were all released by the team. That's what the kind of a coward this guy was. Yeah, that's crazy. And that guy had a degree in child psychology. (laughs) Yeah, you wonder how he got that. Well, he was a child himself. I I don't know. He must have got a degree in kindergarten. (laughs) Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Well, yeah, so I the last quite question a, I got for you here is just uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead. Yeah. So, just the last question I got for you here. Um, we you kind of touched on with the story before about meeting Gordy Howe, playing against them, and kind of uh, playing with all these high caliber players in, in the NHL and, and, and in pro hockey, what what was it like kind of playing against those guys uh, on a daily basis and just having to go up against such tough competition? Well, I, I guess the, you, when you watch them on TV, you're in awe. Well, you, you know, they're in the national hockey league. So it was the greatest, the greatest hockey in the world. Right. So you have to know when you get to that level, Hey, I'm with the greatest players in the world. You know, it's a, it's a huge confidence builder and uh, it's very emotional really, to be honest with you. Um, 
and 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 it's uh, I I don't know how to explain it. Like here you are playing with the guys you watched and you've admired and you respected, and you're on the same ice surface with them. And I guess when you step back from it and you look at it, you have to say, you've got to be pretty proud of your accomplishment, right? Because every kid dreams, all the kids that play hockey, most of them probably dream at some time, even if they're not good, they probably dream about, wow, I wish I could play in the NHL. I wish I could get there. It's probably most kids dream. So you got to think about it. If you got there to play one game, how good were you? You had to be pretty good even to get there and put the equipment on. So I'm very proud of my accomplishment. I only wished I would have played longer and more, but I didn't. But I don't, I don't, I don't dwell on the negative part of that. I dwell on the most positive part is I got there. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that, like you said, not, not too many people in the world can say they did. And, and you got to play it for over two seasons, like you said, which is just, it's an amazing feat. and Nobody really in in Canada and the world has, has that over you. Well, obviously playing against Gordy Howe and uh, and my 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 biggest one one of the things I loved most about playing junior hockey and then the American League and the NHL, I was lucky because when I played junior, I played against the Montreal Canadiens at the Montreal Forum. When I played in the American Hockey League, I played against the Montreal Voyageurs, an American Hockey League team in the Montreal Forum. And when I played in the NHL, I played against the Montreal Canadiens in the Montreal Forum. To me, it was the most emotional thing for me to play in the Montreal Forum. And because of the history, the history of the team. And when I got to the Montreal Forum, I walked around the the ground level, ice level, and they had these life life like life size pictures of um Toll Blake, Elmer Locke, uh Oral Joliet, Doug Harvey, Bernie Jeffrey on, Henri Richard, Rocket Richard. They're all the way around they're all the way around the arena. And wow, I was in awe. These guys were all great hockey players, and it reminds me, what's the dressing room in the London uh, in the in the in the Hockey Hall of Fame? They have the dressing room with the Montreal Canadiens, right? You notice it's not a leaf room. <laughs> it's true, yeah. You probably run out of time here, so yeah. So uh, if if you want to do a second interview one time, we can talk about my baseball career, and I, I because my baseball career was awesome too. Uh, or I can talk more about hockey too if you want to do a. If you think the interview is good enough, we can do another one. I got a lot more to say. Yeah, for sure. No, I'd, I'd love to have you on again and chat about some more of your. Uh... Some, uh, baseball things and and some more hockey stuff. It, it was great. I could talk it. about my I could talk about my coaching and hockey and all my baseball stuff. Um, 
I, I had a very uh, good baseball career, and I was offered a pro contract, Major League Baseball, but I turned it down. And I, I, I could I could talk a lot more about baseball and coaching and hockey. Yeah, for sure. I. I'd- and we are back, and I hope you enjoyed that interview with Barry. It was really cool to sit down with someone who played professional hockey at the NHL level for, even if it only was, parts of two seasons, just to kind of pick his brain and hear some cool stories about when he played, meeting Gordie Howe, being buddies with Daryl Sittler and growing up with him. It was just really cool to talk to him, and, and hopefully I can have him on later on the podcast and maybe do it in person if, if COVID kind of settles out and people start getting vaccines and that sort of thing. I think it would be really cool to sit down with him in person and talk to him again. Staying with the hockey theme, touching on the Toronto Maple Leafs, they finally break out of their mini slump they had and get a well-deserved 4-3 win over the Winnipeg Jets. In my opinion, the past few games playing Vancouver and then losing that first one to Winnipeg, the Leafs have been outplaying these teams in every single game. They're just getting unlucky bounces. You saw the first game in Winnipeg, uh, against Winnipeg. Matthews kicks one into his own net. They have been out shooting every every team they play in, in that losing skin. They finally showed yesterday. It just kind of went their way and ended up finishing with an insane Matthews goal. Just dragging the demon in. Fakes forehand goes top shelf back in. That was just a sick goal. I think one player who's really stood out to me as of late, well, two players to be to be exact, would, would be Zach Hyman has just been a workhorse. He's in a contract year. I don't know how the Leafs are going to finesse their way into being able to sign this guy. You have to. He's part of this core now. He he has been for a while, and he, he really drives that third line, and he can play up with the second or first line as well, as he showed in previous years. And the other Leafs, Leafs player that's been really impressive in the past five or six games has been uh, Willie Nylander. He's played great ever since Sheldon Keefe kind of called him out. I think it lit a fire under him and he's just been playing better on the defensive end. He really seems to care. Like you you would see him in previous games. It would just see like he was floating around waiting for the opportunity to get the puck in the slot. Now he's he's banging bodies in the corners. He's he's trying to make that first play to make make sure his team can get a point or when he's out on the ice have a good shift. And that's all you want from Nylander. He he he's such a skilled guy in the offensive zone if he puts in 50% in the defensive end, it's going to be a win for everybody. They have a game coming up tomorrow against Winnipeg again for this three-game series. you got to go Freddie again, in my opinion, and, and, and hope he has another good game. If they can get that win against Winnipeg, they will be up eight points, I believe, in the north. If they can get that win and they keep winning these series two out of three, they're running away with the north. No team is even comparable or on their level. You look at the only team who might scare you is Montreal, but even if Carey Price isn't playing well, it's going to be a quick five-game series, to say the least, or even a sweep, in my opinion. Switching gears to talk a little baseball, I'm going to be briefly going over my predictions for the AL West in the 2021 season. In first place, I have none other than the Houston Astros, the cheaters, the scumbags. They showed last year in the playoffs that they can still do this, even with the loss of Springer in center field. They still are a very dangerous team. They signed Jake Odorizzi to a two-year deal not too long ago. Um... I think Verlander might be coming back this year. I'm not too positive. They're just always going to be up there. They're going to be a scary team, and I think they can get it done again this year and finish first in the West. In in the second spot, I have the Oakland A's. I think they're going to have a decent year. They're going to surprise a lot of people. They lost their, their infielder, Simeon, to the Jays as well. Um, they've looked good in, in previous years. I think if they can put all the pieces together and, and play the right way, they're going to have a great year. In third, I have the Angels. 
They got Shohei Otani coming back, obviously the best player in baseball, Mike Trout in center field, and they've added a couple pieces on the fringes. Anthony Rendon at third. If if they put all the pieces together, I, I think they can even make a push for the first or second spot in the AOS. But just to be conservative, I'm going to put them in the uh, in the three hole. In fourth, I have the Texas Rangers. They're a team to me that doesn't scare me one bit. They used to be that kind of scary team with everyone in their lineup, but just with them trading pieces and losing pieces in free agency, I don't see them being a threat much at all in AO West. And I think the highlight of the year is going to be a new diamond. <laughs> and in last, I have the Seattle Mariners. They are, they're just bottom of the barrel. They're going to be a team where you go into a three game set and you're, 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 you're basically going to win two and probably sweep them if you uh, if a good team comes into town. They don't scare me one bit. They have nothing that really puts any fear into opponents on the mound or 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 up at the plate. So I'm not I'm not too worried about the Mariners. This division to me can be sneaky good if if Texas and if the Angels can pull it together and have good years. I think this division could be a lot better than some people give it credit for. Lastly, I am just going to briefly touch on the aftermath of UFC 259. Of course, in the first title fight, you have Peter Yan versus Aljamain Sterling. Yan dominated that fight and throws a ridiculous illegal knee and loses the belt for himself. I mean, I don't know how you do that. You have such a big lead. He won the first two, three rounds. I forget what round you need him in the face. Just he had to play a conservative fight. Let the fight come to him like he was doing the entire time and just tire Aljamain out. He did that and then he ended up throwing the knee which which cost him cost him the belt and retaining that title. I think it's a dumb move, but I I, I wouldn't be surprised if he has the belt by the end of the year again. In the second main event, pure domination. Amanda Nunes just bullying Megan Anderson in, in the first round. I think he knew right from the jump that Nunes was gonna was gonna bully her the entire fight. I think it lasted all of what, a minute and once once Amanda got her hands on her, it was game over. Hit her with a couple good hand punches and then just got her on the ground and cemented her in two different ways. <laughs> it, it was absurd. And then in the main event, the title fight between Adesanya and Blahovich, you see a guy in Izzy who just looked overpowered at times, especially on the ground in the last two rounds. I think Jan won the fight in the last two rounds, just being able to bully him on the on the on the ground and not let Izzy move too much. I think no matter what how much he prepared to be on the ground with such a big guy, it wasn't gonna happen. He wasn't gonna be able to move once Jan got on top of him. I think kudos to Jan. He really showed that people overlooked him in this fight and that he he is a really good champion and he's gonna contend he's gonna uh defend that belt for for many fights to come. That is going to do it for episode number 11 of the 34 show. I hope you all enjoyed. It was really fun doing that interview with Barry, like I said, and uh, I will uh, see you on Monday.